This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we are joined by our next new host, Josh Basse. He is the lead campus minister with Impact Campus Ministries in Cincinnati, a newly established team for us. He is passionate about digging deep into the text and finding practical, psychological, cultural, and mystical ways of weaving ourselves into God's story. He and his wife, Sophia, have just purchased a home in College Hill and look forward to building a family. So, Josh, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, welcome to the team. So this is, for now, for now, the uh, the last member that we're going to be introducing you to in this newly expanding, this growing, developing, evolving teaching team here at Bema. So let's just, one last time, Brent, I don't know if I've made this clear enough, we're, we're widening the team out. We are, it's no longer just the Brent and Marty show. The Marty and Brent Show. It's now the Marty, Brent, L, Reed, and Josh Show. And I can imagine we probably, maybe we'll add even more voices as we continue to grow and develop. Because we don't just want to hear two, the same two guys talking about the Bible. Nobody wants that. People want more, right? At least we should. It's healthier. Brent, what do you have to say about any of this? What do you think? I just, I just want to know oh, which one is the greatest in the kingdom. I mean, in the in the list of hosts. Ooh, <laughs> yeah, no, and that's good. And I'm glad you said list of hosts because watch me dodge that completely. Um, this is this is not just guests. These are not. I, I don't know if I've articulated this clearly, but this is not. These aren't guests in our podcast. This is a new. This is an expanding team. So these are hosts. So there's a good chance that you might hear Marty and Brent. There's a good chance you could hear Brent and Josh. There's a good chance you could hear Marty and Reed. You could, whatever. Like any combination of these voices uh, could be conversations that you would hear now on the Bayma podcast. So, and I, I'm really enjoying introducing all these people. Uh, the things that I, I love about them. I feel like Brent, your introduction actually stole all the thunder that I would have had. All the had all the words that I would have associated with. Uh, with Josh. And and so I think actually the best way to introduce Josh is just going to be to get into the conversation today. Um, and so what we're going to do is we're going to get into the text, which I love. Uh, Bema is all about the Bible. So we're going to get back into the text today. I, I do want to just, uh, since Reed's not here to defend himself, like give him a hard time as being the only host who didn't want to talk about the Bible. Reed just wanted to talk about deconstruction and like... <laughs> But everybody else, I don't know about everybody else on the team, Reed, but we all want to talk about the text. Um, just kidding. Uh, I love that about Reed, and that's what I said I loved about Reed, is he helps me think about the Bible in very, very healthy ways. And that's the point of expanding the team, right? Woo, is so we have these is. different perspectives, these different voices with different focuses. Come on, Brent Billings. I love it. Um, so we have, uh, yeah, we, we had Elle talk to us last uh, week about um, Jephthah. How'd she say it? Yepta? Yeah, I can't remember how she taught She uh, taught us how to... Oh, boy, all like the that. goodies. <laughs> but uh, she talked to us about Jephthah's daughter and um, just some really helpful reflections on that. And so today, uh, Josh, uh, we've been talking about this, golly, we, since, like, since I moved to Cincinnati and then we started going on regular walks as part of the Impact team. Mm-hmm. And our relationship, and we and we and we've been talking about Moshe striking the rock for a while now. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and I'm excited to go back to this because this was one episode that people got fired up about. Like, 
because I insinuated, and I think I made crystal clear, it was just a personal theory (laughs) based off of some things I had heard from one of my teachers. I wasn't sold on it. I wasn't saying this is clearly what the text teaches. I was just speculating out loud. And I think at some point I speculated about my speculation that maybe what we see here based on the Hebrew phrasing is Moshe potentially striking, potentially, potentially even striking and killing an Israelite or two. Uh, in his anger, and that uh, maybe appropriately very uh, much upset a lot of people. And uh, so I'm excited to come back to this story and remind us that that was just a theory. I've actually heard some incredible teaching from uh, Aleph Beta and Rabbi Foreman and some of his colleagues and what they think about this story. And I was like, oh, that's really actually super good. I think it lines up with a lot of what, Josh, what we're going to talk about today. And so I'm just super excited about... uh, returning to this, maybe redeeming this story with some better thoughts now a few years later. So if you made it 200 episodes, here's your reward. You get to hear a better theory about (laughs) Moses or maybe an expanding theory about Moses striking the rock. So this is going to be how you introduce this, how how you meet Josh Basse will be a great conversation. So let me just get started. Uh, Josh. Well, real quick before you jump in with the question. So uh, initially, I know we mentioned this story sort of in passing in episode 21, but I believe what, what you're referring to is from episode 30. Is that right? I think so. What's the title of episode 30? Lead with your voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah, should be it. That should be the right one. Yep. So I'll, I'll link those two episodes in case people want to go back and refresh a little bit. All right, Brent, do I have your permission to proceed with the question? <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> This is the dangerous part of expanding the team is we're going to get more and more sassy as we go along. <laughs> uh, here's the question. What what was Moshe's sin? He he gets barred from entering the promised land. And I know, I know everybody wants to email and be like, but the Mount of Transfiguration, he gets, I get that email like once every 10 days or so. Like, but he gets into the promised land at the Mount of Transfiguration. Okay, barring that, <laughs> wonderful, <laughs> clever observation. Uh, he gets barred from entering the promised land. What was Moshe's sin? Josh, tell us. Right, yeah. And and part of the problem is that we are like kind of told explicitly, like God gives a reason. God says, you know, you didn't trust me and you didn't make me holy to the people. But that answer is also not super clear. Um, and especially in terms of like understanding the consequences Moses had for it. Um, it just doesn't sit well with us, I think. It doesn't really scan correctly. And um and you also see this in rabbinic discussion. There's a ton of uh, debate over what Moses's specific uh, sin was. And uh, especially whenever you see like a ton of different rabbinic opinions, like, you know, something interesting is going on. And specifically, one of my favorites, uh, the Ramban, uh, also known as Nachmanides, uh, he, he's got this knack for like pointing out when something really big is going on in the Torah. And he, his comment on this story is that it's a matter of great, uh, it's a great secret of the mysteries of the Torah, which always perks my ears up to hear something like that from uh, one of the big dogs in the rabbinic world. Yeah, one of the great, when one of the great rabbis says, this is a mystery, this is a secret. Like you, that, that makes you go like, oh, okay, this is, we're, we're, we're batting in the major leagues here. Oh yeah. And, and in fact, one of my, one of my absolute favorite teachings, um, is, uh, based on day two of creation and he makes very similar comments around there and just yeah anytime anytime uh rambon says something's something weird is going on i uh, my ears perk up and i i dig right in um so there's there's something going on here that uh 
really demands, I think that we, we really like ask like what, what Moses of sin is. Um, cause it, it, the text is, is, is screaming at us to ask more questions cause it's, it just doesn't make any sense. Well, so perhaps before we talk about this further, I, I kind of have like three, like setup questions. I'm kind of curious if you want to lay out who the characters are in this story, uh, where the story lands kind of in the broader narrative of scripture or of the Exodus story or, or however you want to Mm-hmm. place that and then what's like the more immediate context of the story like maybe right before right after like what what do we see around it that kind of gives us clues into this story as well great first question who is in this story because um you know we talk about the lullaby effect on here a lot and you know if you read this story you're like okay we got moses we got our aaron we got our god we got the people of israel seems like the gang's all here but uh there's kind of a secret character switch that isn't obvious if you haven't been paying attention to numbers. And uh, that's the Israelites. This is not the same people of Israel that we've been reading about. This is the new generation of Israelites after the 40 years of wandering and dying off of the previous generation in the desert. So this is a different people of Israel, a different character. And this story is actually going to uh, tell us a lot about them. Um, and it's it's kind of one of the the basically right at the beginning of their journey as a new generation. And this kind of gets into your second question, which is like, where does this fit into the broader narrative? Like I said, it's at the end of their time of wandering, but more specifically in the book of numbers, um, it doesn't just like lay out, like here's the 40 years wandering around. Here's what happened. Like it, it doesn't give a beginning point and an end point, which is why it's hard to miss this change in generations. But what you see is this pattern of, um, for basically the last seven chapters of numbers between when they are told they have to wander. And this point in the narrative, we have a series of essentially like rebellions that Moses navigates. And then, um, each rebellion uh, large and small is followed by a response for God from God, usually like a, a new commandment, uh, a new additional law that, you know, is there to uh, help essentially like fix the problem that was highlighted by the rebellion. So like one of the easy examples to point to is someone breaks the Sabbath and after Moses deals with the fallout from that, God says, okay, where, where tzitzi, where are the tassels so that you have a reminder so that you don't forget to observe the Sabbath. And there's this pattern of, you know, there's a, uh, there's a problem, Moses handles it, and then God adds to the commandments to try and prevent that from happening in the future. And then really strangely, right in the immediate context of this story, the very previous chapter, chapter 19, goes all through the like rituals of how to deal with um, death from the, the impurity that you contract when you come into contact with a dead body or a gravesite or anything kind of to do with uh, a dead human being. And what's funny about this is it doesn't follow a rebellion. The last rebellion is, uh, the Korach rebellion. And, uh, that's in chapter 16 and 17. And then 18 has to do with laws about the priesthood because, uh, Korach's, oh, Korach's whole thing, <laughs> Korach's whole thing has to do with, um, challenging Moses and Aaron on who gets to be priests. So chapter 18 deals with more specific laws about the priesthood. And then 19, we just get this extra command kind of out of nowhere. And uh, kind of the hint I think that Numbers is giving us is that this commandment is God like being proactive instead of reactive. Uh, God is is uh, giving 
them uh, uh, a hint as to what's going to happen next. I love that. And uh, the the setup to this larger picture, and there's I'm already seeing like like I got pistons firing here as I like think about the big picture, the the macro versus the micro, all the different. Like there's a bunch of relevant information here. Now, one of the things that we always did from day one that maybe even at different points throughout our sessions, we even kind of got away from, uh, but I love that you're going to bring us back to this, is we we taught our listeners, especially in session one, to look for problems. And the reason that we looked for problems is because it helped us engage the text in a new way. Our Western mind always wants to resolve problems, avoid problems, answer problems, and yet an Eastern way of engaging a story and an Eastern teacher and Eastern teaching is going to purposely put problems in there to draw us in, not to push us away. And so we wanted to teach ourselves very early in the journey, like, don't shy away from problems. In fact, look for problems in the story and ask those questions because that's what leads to the good stuff. So we're going to read the we're going to read the passage here like we did all the way back in session one. And we're and we're going to look we're going to look for problems, and we'll see what kind of problems that Josh has pulled out uh, when he reads these stories. But Brent, how about you read us Numbers Numbers chapter 20 and, and give us the story here. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, if only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness, that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It is no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community, so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he was proved holy among them. Right, so there we have the story. And I imagine there's a whole list of problems that we could see and hear in this. But Josh, tell me the problems that stand out the the most to you as you reflect on this. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is definitely going to be an amended list of uh, problems. <laughs> I, there's probably at least three times as many. Um, and they're all very interesting. And, and most of them will tie into the same things we're talking about. But uh, to like pare it down to the biggest ones, be number one like why didn't the people mourn miriam um like you know we uh, you highlighted that back in episode 30 um and how strange that is but i think um you know we kind of take it for granted that they didn't and instead of asking like why why didn't they um in fact we'll see later in this chapter they mourn for aaron so you know what was the difference here right 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 yeah they they have no problem mourning it's not that they don't know it's that they why do they it seems like uh purposely not mourn her at least at uh, from one way of looking at the story. Right, exactly, exactly. There seems to be, yeah, exactly, something purposeful and intentional about this exclusion. Um, 
And we should think about that from the people side. Again, this is a new people of Israel. So, you know, we, we can't come at this assuming that we know who these people are. Like these are uh, people who weren't necessarily the leaders of the previous generation. They haven't necessarily done a whole lot. So, um, you know, we know they weren't involved in the rebellions or they would have died during those rebellions. So this is really a fresh group of people. And I think it's important that we take the time to to figure out why, like what their motivation is, what their character is. Yeah. Great point to bring back up again. Like this is not just the people as an abstract group, this is a particular group of people. And this is not the same group of people we encountered back in Exodus. Mm-hmm. And uh, the second problem also has to do with the people and it's about their it's about their complaint to Moses. It's a very strange complaint, especially when we compare it to how their the previous generation complained. I mean, for one thing, um they talk about wanting to have died with the previous generation in the desert. Uh which is not usually a thing. Sometimes they'll accuse Moses of wanting them to die in the desert. Sometimes they'll talk about wanting to go back to Egypt, but uh not here. They they're they're actually wishing that they had just died along with the previous generation. Um, and then there's like this weird attitude toward the place that they're in. They talk about it as an evil place. They also seem to have like these weird expectations that it should be like the promised land, uh, which even within that one issue, like, you know, it's like, well, what what were you expecting Kadesh to be like? (laughs) You thought it was going to be the promised land or it's an evil, what's going on? Uh, very confusing. And then, uh, also on that, like, very specific list of expectations they had. You know, why talk about grain, figs, grapevines, and pomegranates? Their shopping list. They got a shopping <laughs> list. And they're like, I, I didn't find any of this stuff on my list. Exactly. Exactly. And again, like, this is language that's either used to talk about the promised land or when Israel is wanting to go back to Egypt, sometimes they'll talk about all the good things in Egypt. But this isn't. this doesn't fit into that category very easily either. Um, and then finally, and probably the biggest problem with their complaint is like, if water was the main issue, why was it last? Like it's almost added as an afterthought. Um, and they seem to have like this big problem with Kadesh and then are like, Oh yeah, we also need water in the desert. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Which seems to be the dominant part of the story, but not as it comes out of their mouth. Exactly. Um, and then, uh, next problem I have problem number three, uh, why did God tell Moses to take the staff if he wasn't supposed to strike the rock? Like, if that was the big deal. Yes, yes. Why does God even have him pick up the dang staff? And, and in Foreman's teaching, he'll draw a huge amount on this question. I think it's a big question here in the story. Mm-hmm. And then finally, uh, problem number four, why was Moshe angry? And I mean, we, we kind of know, like, you delved into that in uh, episode 30 about, you know, him being upset because they didn't mourn Miriam. But um, this is kind of out of character for Moshe. Like, he's usually very gentle. I mean, we're told explicitly that he's extremely humble. Uh, in fact, in the very last rebellion, in the Korok rebellion, he when they when they come to him and they bring all these, like, really vicious accusations, he begins by bowing to them. Like, he's very deferential. And... Here, he, like, comes out of the gate swinging, and uh, uh, this really seems to to uh, have affected him in a way that's very different from previous rebellions. So it, it's like, you know, what, what's what's up with Moses? <laughs> like, I mean, I know a member of his family died, obviously, but um, he's been in, in similar situations of, of uh, being threatened by the people, and, and he had an especially calm head then. So what's going on here? 
those are my problems. Yeah, that that's a great summary of the problems in a few minutes. And I feel like there's so much detail. So maybe <laughs> we can go back through those in order and yes. um, kind of pull each of those problems apart and see what we can find for for all of them this is feeling very foreman-esque by the way <laughs> and i don't think josh not to not to like put you on the spot you don't go you don't spend all this time listening to foreman's material no i actually i i always feel guilty because he has such good stuff and so many times i'll talk to you about something like yeah foreman talked about that i'm like oh man i gotta get which that. is great yeah. but i mean when marty talks about stuff you can pretty much guarantee like i bet marty heard that from foreman <laughs> when you hear stuff from josh i'm like josh doesn't listen to foreman so it probably doesn't come from him but uh this is this whole style of your is is very foreman esque because it's like okay what are the problems let's list the problems okay let's go through those problems okay let's set come like anybody that's read his books like this mm-hmm. is very very fitting for the Baymod journey so I, I just love that I had to geek out there for a moment I like how you're <laughs> I like how you're doing this but problem one Brent take us through yeah so why why didn't they mourn Miriam right now and this is particularly curious because I'm like we don't know a ton about Miriam she only pops up in um like four stories if you include moses's infancy and her saving him kind of a crucial enabler for the story i'd say right and i mean and the few stories we do have is like okay she she led all the women of israel when they were coming out in the exodus um and you know it's like okay someone who's such a a a beloved figure in the community that like you know the entire like all the women of israel followed her all the women of israel were inspired by her enough to to um you know pack their tambourines and step out in faith in that way and we might think like you know um especially if you're looking at this uh in the context of the book of numbers maybe you'd say like oh like the korok rebellion was all about nepotism like korok was basically saying okay moshe like really like your brother just happens to be the guy god wanted to be high priest like okay buddy uh sounds like you're pulling some strings here so we could say like Maybe there was some like leftover resentment for Moses' family. But like I said before, you know, Aaron dies later in this same chapter and they mourn for Aaron for a full month. So there's not any hostility there. And uh, most uh, uh, most potently, I think we see the people's relationship to Miriam uh, in the episode where she is afflicted with leprosy. And actually, um, I included a, uh, a little text for Brent to read if we jump all the way back to Numbers 12. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on till she was brought back. And that is a huge statement, because this is when the Israelites are in the desert. They don't get to choose when they move. They move when God moves. They follow the pillar. They, in fact, this is why later on we'll see they have to recircumcise everyone when they cross the Jordan, because they didn't know if they would stay put long enough to safely perform circumcisions, you could be in a spot for two years. You could be in a spot for two days. You just don't know. So the text said that while Miriam was in quarantine for leprosy, they wouldn't move until she came back. Meaning that their like loyalty to Miriam was really deep and profound. They're like, we're not moving on without Miriam. We're just not going to do it. So she meant a lot to the people of Israel. She like, if anything, we would say that like Israel loves her maybe even more than Moshe. Golly, I'm thinking about that. And I know, Josh, you haven't gotten to hear the episode we recorded last week, but man, what a wild connection to the things that Elle shared about Jephthah's daughter. Like in, in that story, this negative, like 
the community's not going out to find her, to restore her, to bring her back to community like they did with Jephthah. And here in this, you do have a community saying, this person, this leader, this woman is important to us. And we're so, mm-hmm. man, I really, really like that. That's really great. Yeah. And I mean, it, I think it also speaks to, I mean, we could probably have a whole conversation about leprosy and like the position of trying to push the lepers out versus. Sure. Like, oh, goodness. Yeah. Waiting with like bated breath to gather yeah. them back in. Oh, man. That's just like, oh, gut punch. Okay. Go ahead. But, but either way, like the, the bottom line is that like Israel loves Miriam. They love Miriam. And. So then it's like even more confusing. Like, why not more? Like, why isn't this a bigger deal to Israel than it is? And uh, we'll have to get into the second problem to answer the first problem. Yeah, let's let's talk about how strange the complaint is. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. Like I said before, they don't mention wanting to go back to Egypt. They don't they don't question God or or God's leadership at all. They're only confronting Moses. Um. And again, like there seems to be this strange, strange uh, fixation on Kadesh. Um, even the food, right? The food complaint is also kind of about Kadesh. Yeah, connected to the location, not just the general plight, but the location in particular mm-hmm. here at Kadesh. Yes. And then we have all the specific foods. We have this evil place reference. Um, and yeah, they, they in general seem to be more bothered about Kadesh than the lack of water. So what is the big problem with Kadesh? And the answer is, well, I mean, it's it's just seven chapters back in number six. Is it in the text, Josh Basse? It's, it's in the text. <laughs> They've been to Kadesh before. And uh, yeah, let's hear about that. Okay, numbers 13. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehov toward Levo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahaman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moshe and Aharon. See, I'm just going to do this. I'm not used to this. And I'm just going to switch back and forth between those pronunciations. So you guys are just going to have to keep up, I guess. That's all good. <laughs> uh, they came back and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. So they, so they, uh, I'm just so excited I'm going to answer that. <laughs> so this, this, as you've been pointing out, this is not the same group of people, Mm-mm. but this group of people watched it. They witnessed it. They heard about it. Now they're back in the same place. Yes. This is Kadesh. This is Kadesh. And they, they're not, they're not like, let's not hang out, man. We're ready. We're chomping at the bit. We're, yes. we're going to get in there. We're going to do the thing that God told us to do. Like we want to go to the promised land. Let's yes. do it. Kadesh is literally where the last generation tripped and fell and had to start all the wandering 
And specifically, what is it the spies brought back? They brought back figs and pomegranates and grapes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, so that's so good. So, so good. what they're reminding Moses is, hey, buddy, Kadesh <laughs> is not the promised before. land. Oh, Kadesh is not the promised land. The promised land is over there. That's where we want to go. We don't want to mess up here like our like our ancestors did. Josh, I didn't even pick that up in all of our previous conversations <laughs> at the figs and that. That is so good. Wow, that's great. Oh, uh, yes. So this is this yeah, in in to a to a eastern audience, this would be a bright neon sign. It's very clear what Israel uh, this this generation of Israel is talking about. They are zealous to do God's mission, to go to the promised land. They are pumped up. And at the same time, Moses is not, and that's where the conflict lies, which brings us to problem number three. Why the staff? Which uh, I thought, just a crazy, uh, I had never really considered this, and then I watched some of Foreman's teaching, and he pointed this out. I've always assumed, like, there was never a question about, like, I had never asked the question, which staff? Mm, mm -hmm. Like, you asked the question, why the staff? And I just, before we even got into it, I wanted to interject the question of which staff, which I had never questioned. I just thought, you know, Moshe's staff. Right, yes. But I'm not sure that's the staff that we're talking about after listening to you and after listening to Rabbi Foreman. You both pointed out independently the same point that that's probably not what's going on here. Right. So the the staff, God specifically says, take the staff from my presence, which would be the staff of Aaron that budded. And that was pretty recent in the story. That that came out of Korok's rebellion back in chapter what was it, 18. And, uh, and God gave them that sign there. That's how they were able to prove that Aaron was the rightful high priest as they, they gathered a bunch of sticks together, wrote people's names on it and whichever one bloomed, that was the, the chosen uh, lineage. So it is unclear though, about which staff they use. Some, some of the, the, there's a lot of rabbinic debate about whether it was the staff from the Exodus, because as we know, like it's talked about as God's staff, Moshe's staff, Aaron's staff. Um, so it could very well have been Aaron's actual staff tied up in the bundle. Some rabbis think that they wouldn't have done that because that would have seemed like uh, cheating, kind of. You know? <laughs> like, oh, we're going to gather like you know eleven regular sticks and then one magic stick that parted the Red Sea. I wonder which one's gonna you know <laughs> sure. it's gonna bloom. But uh, so there there is some uh, arguments that that this is uh, maybe originally. Um, just a, a regular stick and not the same one from the Exodus. But either way, we know that it is the staff that bloomed. Like that is very clear in the text. Which I never noticed. Like it's, it is clear. And I just never picked it up until golly, less than two years ago. Yes. And actually um, we should dive right into the text here because uh, yeah, th this staff has a particular meaning uh, that came out of the Korok rebellion. Okay. So numbers 17, mm -hmm. the next day, Moses entered the tent and saw the Aaron staff, which represented the tribe of Levi had not only sprouted, but had budded blossomed and produced almonds. Well, that's pretty handy. Mm, yeah. <laughs> then Moses brought out all the staffs from the Lord's presence to all the Israelites. They looked at them and each of the leaders took his own staff the Lord said to Moses, put Aaron's staff in front of the Ark of the Covenant Law to be kept as a sign to the rebellious. This will put an end to their grumbling against me so that they will not die. Mm -hmm. Now, 
this puts a little wrinkle in things because the purpose of the staff, the reason why God told Moshe to hang on to it was to confront rebels and uh, put down rebellions. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you see where there's like, there's some, uh, 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 yeah, a little wrinkle here. It gets a little funky. There's an impetus for Moshe to come out and be like, listen, you rebels. Yes, exactly. God's even told me that I have got this staff in my hand. Oh, boy. Oh, yes. But wait, we'll we'll come back to that. But yeah, that. oh, yeah, go for it. So then why is he angry? Because he has the staff that he knows, like, this is the purpose of the staff. This is the right tool for the job. So why does he need to be angry on top of it? He has exactly. the right tool. So what? where does the anger come from? What What purpose does it serve? Exactly. Exactly right. Because, you know, yeah, like you said, it, this on the surface, this seems to kind of answer the next question of why Moses comes out so hot. But on the other hand, that should make this a pretty straightforward way of dealing with a rebellion, which Moshe has been pretty level headed about. So it, it kind of makes even less sense about why Moshe is angry. Um, but yeah, let's dive into the anger part. Um, and th- that'll kind of, I think, help clear up the staff issue. So. Moshe's anger. Why is he so angry at the people? Um, like we were just observing, we could hypothesize that it's because the the people are rebelling, just like Korok, and that's why he had to take the staff, and it was all, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That's kind of uh, might make sense of why God told him to take the staff, but it doesn't quite cut it, because as we've said, you know, even with rebellions that were openly hostile, um, Moses is very humble and takes it in stride. Um, and Moses, like if you read the Korok, uh, rebellion closely, like Moses doesn't even become inter like we get a, a, I believe in the text, it like specifically tells us when Moshe becomes like internally angry and it's not until they like really rebuff his attempt to make peace with them. And, uh, and here, like, again, we have the people of Israel just, I mean, if anything, maybe being a little overzealous, for God's mission. Like if we wanted to say anything negative about them, they want to do the right thing too badly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And you know, who knows, maybe the people had like said it in a nasty attitude or whatever, but uh, (laughs) it was in their tone. Moshe was like, I don't like your tone. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, but, um, it doesn't really quite make sense. So, uh, let's go ahead and, read a little bit just to hear it from the text about how Moshe handled his anger back in number 16 when dealing with the uh, Korok rebellion. Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, do not accept their offering. I have not taken so much as a donkey from them, nor have I wronged any of them. Moses said to Korah, you and all your followers are to appear before the Lord tomorrow, you and they and Aaron. Each man is to take his censer and put incense in it. 250 censers in all and present it before the Lord. You and Aaron are to present your censers also. Right. And so we see like, you know, he's capable of like speaking to people who are actively like antagonizing him and to try and ameliorate things with them, try and negotiate with them. And here we don't see any of that. Like, like literally we have the people say something to Moses. Moses does not respond to them. He goes to God. And in fact, and this might be a parallel in the text, they actually bow down in God's presence, not to the people. So there's like, you know, no posture of humility toward the people, no posture of like listening or trying to, um, you know, maybe uh, work things out with them. It's just immediately they go to God and, and then Moses comes back angry 
and and it's like the people don't even have a chance to to respond or make a good choice or whatever the problem is. We've seen Moshe respond at least better, maybe even well, and here Moshe just seems impulsively reactive. Right. And again, there's kind of a, a Peshat answer just dangling right there with the death of Miriam. Like, you know, Moshe has lost his sister, the person who saved him from death, uh, who helped him like stay connected to his Hebrew heritage. Um, there's like a a deep connection between Moshe and and Miriam in the text. So, you know, we could say like, you know, that this is the factor, you know, maybe Moshe just like kind of overreacted out of grief. And if so, you know, that that's all well and good, but then it kind of, again, we run into the problem of like, then why did God react the way God did? Like if, if Moshe was just mourning, like we know how God feels about mourners, um, so what, what was the big deal if like Moshe just was a little, a little too aggressive because his sister just died? Like you think God would give some grace for that. Now there's something a little bit further in the text, uh, ahead of the story that we're reading, uh, just by a bit that reveals another dimension to this story. And, uh, it's, uh, here in the same, uh, same chapter numbers 20. Yeah. And this is the Lord speaking. Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will not enter the land I give the Israelites because both of you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. That's that word again. Rebel. Mm -hmm. Somebody's been rebel. And it is the exact same word that Moshe uses. God flips it around on him. Which means that the people were not the rebels in this story. Moshe was. Moshe was the rebel. And now this changes the whole staff thing, right? The staff is there to stop people from rebelling. So why did God tell Moshe oh. to take the staff? Who was the staff's message directed for? Not the punch people. again. Yeah. Oh, goodness. <laughs> and uh, what kind of flowers did the staff bloom? Uh, well, there were almonds. Almonds, yes. And, uh, you know, that wasn't just because they're a great snack. Uh, almonds have a very particular uh, uh, symbolic uh, meaning in the text. Um, in fact, if you read the very beginning of Jeremiah, there the whole first image is based on almonds, and what almonds always signify is haste. They're one of the first things to produce a crop in the in the agricultural year, and so almonds always mean like something is going to happen quickly. In fact, the root word for almonds, shakad, also just means haste. So now the staff has become like this very nuanced thing, right? Like. God is telling Moshe, like, you were, you were chosen out of all these staffs. Your line was chosen. You were chosen. And uh, now you're rebelling and you need to move quickly, right? Like that's all tied up in this image of the staff. You need to move quickly. Don't rebel against this mission that I've, I've given to you, that I've given to the people of Israel. And so really like kind of in a, um, maybe the first time ever God sides with the people of Israel over Moshe. Like just God, God is telling Moshe the people are right. You got to move on. And uh, in fact, we might even like recall back to uh, uh, chapter 19 with the uh, introduction of how to deal with death ritualistically. Um, God is, been trying to communicate this to Moshe even before this story started of like, you're going to have to deal with death. You're going to have to let go. 
And this ends up like this is the real conflict between Moshe and the people. It's not really about water. It's about, you know, this tragic moment where his sister dies at like the worst possible place. And the people want to move on quickly towards God, God's mission. And Moshe doesn't want to move on. Like that's the conflict. And yeah, God sides with the people on this one. Which seems to fit the, the two parts that we heard from God. Right. Well, at least, at least, at least the first part, I don't, You'll have to, you may have to talk more about the second part, but the, this first part about not trusting God. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, the trusting God thing makes a little bit of sense. But yeah, what's that making God holy? And actually, like a lot of translations do this differently because this is a very funky thing to say in the Hebrew. Um, and in fact, it, we should notice that any talk about holiness in this chapter should perk our ears up because... Uh, you probably mentioned it before on the podcast, Marty, but the word for holiness in Hebrew is kadosh. And if that sounds a lot like kadesh, it's because it's exactly the same word root. Oh, yeah, sure. So this place is like named after holiness. And uh, yeah. this is this is why. There's something to do with this whole God being holy thing. But um, what's, I think, really challenging and something that we miss is that... Um, the like the literal Hebrew here talks about Moses making God holy, which should like feel a little bit sacrilegious, right? Like we're right, making yeah, God right. holy, <laughs> right? Seems backwards. Yeah, I mean, it, it's almost like uh, you know God asking you to baptize him or something like that. You know, it'd be it, it's uh, it should take us aback a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, to to step back from like how that kind of fits into God turning things upside down, um. It is still curious. Like, what does it mean? Because like what makes God holy as we would generally understand, I, I think it's safe to say that we would say that it's God's character. It's God's deeds that make God holy. Um, and we know we're, we're talking about holiness here, not like God's reputation, not God's name being like revered as holy, like maybe among the nations or something. This is like an intimate thing. This is between God and the people, God and, and God's bride. Uh, the phrase that keeps coming to mind, uh, I, I don't typically like to jump ahead, but to the Amidah prayer or the Lord's prayer mm. to hallow, you know, our Father heart in heaven, hallowed be your name to, and I've heard people, scholars talk about to holy the name, to Kadush Hashem, to right. like this is, the prayer there isn't saying like, oh God, we hope that we're recognizing your holiness. It it could be, or it is a prayer to say, we need to live in such a way that holy is your name. Yes. Now, the thing here is that it, it goes a step further. It doesn't, like, give that barrier of the name. It's literally, you did not make me holy. Uh, it, right. It's, like, very clear in the Hebrew. And that, and, you know, and we see lots of things being made holy in the text. Um, you know, the tabernacle's made holy. All the parts of the tabernacle, the priests are made holy. They're, they're sanctified, you know, they're set aside for this purpose. So uh, what the heck is going on with this? Like, what do we, what is even meant? when it's when it's god being made holy so just to be clear it's the the hebrew word is to make something because the niv translates it um you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy i'm looking at the net as well it says you did not trust me enough to show me as holy Mm -hmm. but you're saying that hebrew word behind it is is to make holy right yeah it's it's in a there's a particular uh way to write a verb in hebrew to make it causative so it it's literally to cause me to be holy. 
Wow. Um, that's yeah, that's like the literal and, and Hebrew is a little weird because you can all there's a lot of wiggle room in Hebrew. There's a lot of, you know, shades of nuance. So those translations aren't like wrong. That's a, a fine way of understanding it. And I can also understand why they would do it in the sense that like, how can we make God holy? He just is holy. So <laughs> exactly. Like, conceptually, it would be difficult to translate it that way, I think, as well. Yes. And the thing is, I would be more comfortable saying like, OK, yeah, sure. You know, go with that translation if it was like something that was used a lot in the text and had this very obvious connotation of like, oh, we just mean like make God holy to us. But this is not a very common phrase in the Torah. In fact, I've only found one other place in the entire Torah outside of this incident that it's used. And the only other time is in uh, Leviticus 10 with the incident where Nadav and Avihu are Oh, that seems relevant. Yes. Nadav and Avihu? Oh, boy. And in fact, the more we think about that story, we might see things that kind of uh, rhyme with each other. We have, um, you know, a, a really harsh penalty for something that uh yeah. oh, is actually you know let's do a quick overview of that story for can those I, who aren't can familiar. i just read it real quick oh sure go for it okay aaron's sons nadav and avihu took their censers put fire in them and added incense and they offered unauthorized fire before the lord contrary to his command so fire came out of the presence of the lord and consumed them and they died before the lord moses then said to aaron this is what the lord spoke of when he said among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. And I'm assuming that's that word for mm-hmm. make. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. And Aaron remained silent. Oh, it sounds so similar. It sounds like they carbon copied the story. Yeah, it's oh, like yeah. the same. Yeah, is it? Is it like that? Is that whole phrase the same <laughs> oh, in the I Hebrew? Look, I, I think it's it's very similar. It might be slightly different. Just but the I, whole I, energy and the movement of the story is like, part and parcel though like identical it's like a mirror and and guess what later on in the chapter there's this this is the uh, right after this story is when moses and aharon get in an argument about um so basically there's a commandment for aaron that he's not allowed to mourn his sons yeah which like oh goodness gracious i was even thinking about that earlier and i'm like (laughs) ah but that's not relevant hot dog it is relevant (laughs) yeah and and also we have this the case of like okay they did something wrong but like was that was that death penalty level wrong? Like we have this again, like kind of a murky sin, seemingly like a very harsh punishment from God. Um, and, uh, and it's kind of like hard to understand what's going on there, but, um, breaking this down will actually help us understand the numbers 20 story, Moses striking the rock a lot better. So, Uh, Again, we might ask, what was their sin? Verse one kind of says two different things about it. One, it says like it's an issue with the fire. Some translations will say like it was strange fire or alien fire. Um, And it also says explicitly that they didn't, they brought it at the wrong time, that uh, God hadn't commanded it. And again, these don't sound like death penalty issues. um, But if we think about them as disconnected issues, it, it doesn't really work or disconnected reasons. If we put them together, then we kind of get this sense that the offering is somehow tainted, right? The fire is wrong. It's not even the incense is wrong. It's the fire. It's the, maybe even symbolically like the, the passion that, uh, uh, produced this desire to bring the sacrifice. So the thing they brought was wrong and they brought it in the wrong way. Um, yeah, almost like the 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 source is being emphasized more than the the actual offering. A little right. bit like a, a Cain and Abel thing. Like it, it wasn't like the quality necessarily as much as it was like. Oh gosh, I probably shouldn't even get into that rabbit hole. The, well, I tell you what, the <laughs> translation note in the NET on this phrase, uh, it 
it pulls out like four different English translations and each one of them does it a different way. <laughs> and he has all these other interpretations, um, and yes. sources that talk about like, well, maybe it was about this. Maybe it was, and there's like four or five possibilities on both sides of this thing. So exactly, uh, you know, it's not exactly cut and dry. I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. But we're, we're told that there's like, there's something wrong about the fire. There's something like tainted with the thing that is the source of this uh, offering. And then number two, we're told that it had something to do with the timing. They brought it when God didn't want them to bring it. So, next logical question is what is going on at the same time what's wrong with the timing yes what's wrong with the timing now this story comes immediately after the inauguration of the tabernacle after the process of kind of bestowing the priests with their service and then this is like their first official like on the clock priest job and something very unique happens uh god lights the altar fire on the bronze altar outside of the tent and uh, with, with like, you know, use the word fire, but the understanding is that it's lightning, but the lightning doesn't come from the sky like we would expect it to. It comes from the tent, from in front of the ark, which is really huge. Like th this is basically God saying, like, I don't I don't live apart from you. Like I'm not, my presence is here, like lightning strikes from inside here, like the the source of all of creation is in this tent that's in the middle of your camp. Like it's kind of the closest thing we have in the old Testament to like an, an incarnation moment, right? Like God is with like, this is very Emmanuel, right? God is with them. And, you know, it, it's interesting too, because the people, uh, you know, I, I think you might've even mentioned this fall in, on their faces, falling yeah, on joyful faces, falling yeah. on joyful faces. Exactly. And, um, and this is the rabbis point, a big contrast between this and Sinai. Both instances, God shows his glory, which is always like marked with fire. Um, but at Sinai, when God showed her uh, glory, uh, the Israelites were freaked out. <laughs> they, were, they were really freaked out. They couldn't, it, it overwhelmed them. But this time they're celebrating, like they actually feel connected to God in a way that is worshipful and joyful and like this, this union. We might see this as like kind of like a, a a consummation of the marriage in a certain sense. They're growing and they're growing closer together. Exactly. Like the Israelites are growing and they're growing closer together. Now, at this point, um, you know, Israel's having the big celebration. They're partying. And that's what's going on in the background when Nadav and Avihu bring their offering. So the people are celebrating. Now, one of the main objectives of a priest is to put God on display, right? And how does God feel about parties? We, we said he liked him. He ordained the party. God ordained the party. the party. God's pretty serious about the party. Yep. And in particular, one of the priest's jobs, um, it, I didn't plan on going into this, but it's an interesting side note. In Leviticus, when it talks about like how priestly portions are divided up, normally the priest portion can just be like divided among all the priests. Like, you know, one priest, like, performs the actual ceremony, but whatever their cut is of that sacrifice is distributed generally among the priests, except when it is a peace offering, which is also like the, one of the marked like celebratory offerings. And in that case, the priest who ordains, who like personally ordains the party has to personally eat their own sacrifice or eat their portion of the sacrifice. No other priests are allowed to share in it, which basically creates this like little kind of social function where the priest who ordains the party participates in the party. Correct. Right. And Nadav and Avihu 
are ditching the party to go have a little oh, private gracious. worship session with oh, God, yeah. right? God's not okay with that, right? There's no, there's no VIP section in the Mishkan or in the kingdom. God feels pretty strongly about this enough to not only like kill the two eldest sons of the high priest on the day of the inauguration of the tabernacle, which feels like, oh man, what a, that's a, a pretty big move. <laughs> Sounds like a bad idea, honestly. Like, right. oh man, you're going to start this and then immediately uh, kill the high priest, kill the sons. Not a great start, but also like total party killer too. Like this issue is more important to God, even than yeah. the party itself. Pun, pun, no pun intended on that one. Oh, man. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and then, like we said, you know, um, Aaron isn't allowed to mourn. And uh, we have that, again, that specific reference to God saying that he has to be made holy. And that is attached to this idea of, of um, not allowing there to be this this hierarchy, like there are people that are raised up who can put God on display in ways that are really unique and full of, you know, the intention and devotion of having your whole life oriented towards putting God on display. And God really cares about that leadership, not creating an actual hierarchy of this person gets special access to God and you don't. Goodness gracious. So now we jump back to numbers 20 and Remember what the remember what the Israelites said? We wish we had died with our brothers. Like, hear what they're saying to Moses. Like, we, we've all lost someone. We've all lost people, and we had to move on. We had to move on. And we did that because we believed in this mission. If we didn't believe in the mission, then we might as well have died in the desert, too. Oh, goodness gracious. This isn't the promised land, Moshe. We need to move on. And... Moshe can't do it. And and I want to return back to like God's role in all this because, you know, on the surface, it feels like God's being really harsh, but we also see God taking a lot of time to prepare Moshe. Like he gives him these commands about how to deal with death. He gives him the staff. He gives him uh, these moments to, to see what God is doing. And Moshe can't let go of it. And I think in a sense, this kind of speaks to Moshe's struggle with his identity crisis. Is he an Israelite or is he not? Is he all in with the people or is he separate? Is he special? Are there different rules that apply to Moshe and Aharon and his family than the rest of the people? And I think this really pulls it out and shows like at at some level, maybe Moshe still is struggling with that. Oh man. Like the, uh, Oh, goodness. The lesson point uh, on here. Like, we just kind of left this whole thing like hovering and hanging. But the takeaway here is so, uh, I think, even more pertinent than even you realize as you bring it, Josh. Um, Just thinking about the people listening to this podcast, like any leader within the sound of my voice uh, to wrestle with this. Um, Like, there, there are even... Groups of people, faith expressions and traditions that listen to this podcast, they, they actually form a ton of our audience and they, they will be unnamed, but I think they know who I'm listening to, like who I'm speaking to here. Like we can have entire movements of people with a useful, with a youthful generation rising up to say, okay, we believe, I love what you said there. I'm like still reeling. I'm like, I'm breathing heavy over here because I'm like still (laughs) 
trying to process what you said. A whole generation saying, we believe in the mission. We get it. Like we lost people too. Like we, Mm -hmm. but now we're here and we're ready to go. And entire groups of leaders, like wanting to make sure they step in line, wanting to make sure that they, you know, keep their voice down and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, and shut up and obey the rules. And, and you're at this moment, like you're at this moment where you have a group of people ready to go. They're ready to step into the kingdom. They're ready to, and, 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 and leaders, we love to like separate ourselves away because mm-hmm. what a what an ego trip, right? Mm-hmm. To have to like join the masses, like they should be following me. Like, no, 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 we're going to stop and make sure that we maintain order. Oh, yeah. And, oh, gosh, I guess I better stop or I'm going to get on a rant. <laughs> There's a super, actually, a very interesting nuanced conversation. There's a ton of Miriam stuff here that I haven't even gotten into. There, There's some weird references with all the laws around death. Um, there, there's even like when Miriam gets leprosy, there's this conversation around like what makes Moshe different and the ways in which he is special and set apart. And it, it doesn't invalidate this. It kind of gives a lot more nuance. We definitely don't have time here, but well, uh, it's just so it's such a good wrestling point. Um, it's, I mean, I, and I'm really just talking to leaders right now. Be very, very careful. Consider how seriously God, in both these stories now, like I'm wrestling with Nadav and Abihu mm-hmm. and Moshe and the similarities, like this is a repeat. And I would suggest maybe we repeat this frequently. <laughs> like maybe the reason it's a repeat in Torah is because this is such a common leadership faux pas. Oh, yeah. And maybe we should be very, very careful that we that we not stifle what God is doing in the midst of his people as leaders. Hmm. <sighs> there, Man, there's that's a, good stuff. There's a good rabbinic conversation actually that, that deals with that, that, that they put the kind of locus on like what's actually going on behind the scenes is that it's just like, well, Moshe was a part of that old generation. So sure. at some point, like he wasn't going to be able to keep leading them. And this was just the point. This is the, the point where things diverged. Well, I'll tell you, we usually don't do discussion questions. That's not our style, but we got a whole bunch of stuff to discuss with this one. If you got a discussion group and you made it 230 some odd episodes into this thing, um, go dig into the Midrash. Uh, we have some questions here that Josh came up with. What if Moshe had been able to rise to the, how could the story have been different? Like take this to your discussion group, like wrestle with. How could the story be different if Moses had responded differently? If he would have, if he would have encouraged Israel rather than provoke them. And again, man, if you're a leader, man, do not miss that question. Do not. How could the story have been different? What are you in? What are you in danger of doing as a leader? That you're gonna like? What are you gonna screw up by not encouraging God's people? Because you, because we, and I'll put we. We have this ego trip, man. Uh, when Moshe says, how about this question? When Moshe says this rock, is he refer- what rock is he referring to? And from a Jewish perspective, you suggest, uh, Josh, this could be Miriam's headstone. Yes. Yeah, they switch from talking about the rock to this rock, which actually I didn't pick that up until I re-listened to episode 30. And, and you like emphasize it in a way. And I don't know, maybe it was a little bit of a sowed Holy Spirit thing, but it just maybe. popped out. And uh, yeah, he... It, it definitely speaks to his fixation on Miriam's death. But yeah. um, we talked about this when we studied this. I think what you've said about the leadership thing is so huge because 
Um, we, we actually, Marty and I hashed a lot of the, some of the basics of this out over Shavuot and, you know, yeah, we, we actually, yeah. this year for the first time, we, we stayed up literally all night yeah. studying Torah on Shavuot and it paid off being in the text pays off and stunning uh, <laughs> idea. <laughs> yeah. But the, that's what we're talking about. One of the things we noticed was that, you know, Marty brought up how, you know, he's always seen numbers as a book on leadership and this moment. Uh, changes Moshe's leadership style for the rest of the book. He he like checks out after this. It's actually really depressing. Oh gosh, I I I thought I saw it as a book on leadership, but after today, not nearly enough. <laughs> like, goodness gracious! But you're right. Yeah, he totally changes. Almost like uh, makes me feel like Jacob at the end of the book of Genesis. Yes, or Elijah after. Oh no! <laughs> after oh he, gosh! Yeah, goodness. which I mean, Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe there's something there. Oh man. Okay, stop it. Stop it. <laughs> Brent, you got to get us out of this episode. Yeah, I was just thinking, are you are you telling me that I need to take this whole thing a little more seriously and maybe not make jokes about who's greatest in the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> possibly, possibly. No special positions in the podcast. No VIP mm -hmm. section here. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that will do it for this episode. You know where to find Marty and I on Twitter, but uh, for Josh, his um, communication channel of choice is the Baymoss Slack. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes so you can find him on there. Uh, Josh is, by the way, the most active, like, he's unbelievably active. He keeps Slack alive, man. That he This guy is, is all over the place. Prolific. <laughs> you ask one Thank question, you. you're going to get, like, a 10-page treatise, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that is true. And then everyone just eats it up. <laughs> I love it. Anyway, uh, so that does it for this episode. Uh, you can go to BaymontEstablishup.com to find more details about the show. Thanks for joining us this week. We will talk to you again soon. You can't talk to Elle if you're not on the podcast. We must record these conversations.